From the GHJ Media Clips Archive, veteran entertainment lawyer Peter Deckham offers an overview of the state of the business. Peter has been listed in Forbes among the top 100 U.S. lawyers and, in Premier Magazine, as one of the 50 most powerful people in Hollywood. He's the author of Next, Reinventing Media Marketing and Entertainment. Read Peter's chapter Movies, Money, and Madness in the Movie Business Book. This interview is from June 2020 with me and host Ilan Haimoff, head of the Proper Participation Services Practice at GHJ. Off we go. I'd like to welcome everyone back to our movie business podcast series where we are making sense of the new motion picture ecosystem. With me today, as always, is Jason Squire, who I will introduce shortly. And Jason, in turn, will introduce Peter Deckham, who's our uh, going to join us for a discussion about the current state of our industry. Jason is a currently a virtual professor of the practice of cinema arts at USC and the editor of the movie business book. Uh, and uh, both Peter and I have contributed to. Uh, so uh, with all of that, Jason, take it from here. Uh, thanks so much, Elon. And welcome, Peter. Peter Deckham practices law in Los Angeles. Clients have included Hollywood notables George Lucas, Paul Haggis, Keenan Ivory Wayans, John Travolta, Ron Howard, Rob Reiner, Andy Davis, Robert Town, Larry Gordon, as well as corporate clients including Sears, Pacific Telesis, and JVC. Peter's been listed in Forbes among the top 100 lawyers in the United States and in Premier Magazine is one of the 50 most powerful people in Hollywood. He's the author, most recently, of Next, Reinventing Media, Marketing, and Entertainment. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. Uh, if I'm that powerful, I'll use a, a better deodorant. <laughs> so let's begin by asking for your thoughts. When this emergency is behind us, what changes do you see in the entertainment business? That's a rather dramatic question. Let me narrow the focus to the motion picture industry and look at theaters at the outset. And the first question I have back at you is, what does the end of this crisis mean? A lot of people think we've cured the, the disease because basically we have a vaccine. But for those people who are taking a look at the landscape, before all this happened, movie theaters were having a lot of trouble. The independent filmmaker was, was being denied access to the screens, not because of lack of screens, but because of an inability to come up with the releasing costs as distributors were increasingly refusing to pick up that tab. So they would say, fine, put your movie on the screens, but write me a check for 15 to 20 to 30 million bucks, and we'll take it from there. That, of course, is not exactly commonplace among independent filmmakers. Uh, there's a lot of mythology that there'll be a lot of screens and everybody will want to put movies on them. Everybody keeps forgetting about marketing costs, and it's, it's become prohibitive. Although the question right now, when all the advertisers are pulling all their ads on ad-supported broadcast television and even you know, streaming services that have uh, support from, for advertising. So you take a look at, first of all, retail has changed, and a lot of mo motion picture theaters are located in retail malls. With those malls that have not reconfigured to become much more destination-oriented, maybe like Century City here in Los Angeles, which is focused on restaurants, uh, the Americana in Glendale, and other places throughout the city, which have really upped their game. 
But most malls in America haven't upped their game, and they're dying. The retail space is dying. And so if a motion picture theater is affiliated with that mall, it does not have a particularly good feature, a future. We have, probably before this crisis took place, we had 15,000 too many screens. Now in this crisis, there's a stigma that goes with walking into a space with a lot of people in it, even if there's spacing. You don't have the same, oh my God, I gotta see that on a big screen with my friends, we're gonna laugh together. You got people who are, well, um, I, it's gonna be on some sort of platform, digital platform, maybe I'll wait. There really has to be a reason to see a movie today on a big screen, and it really has to be an experience or a social experience, laughter or fear, comedy versus horror, or a big screen that's so big it even dwarfs that you know, 65-inch TV set in your home or 85-inch whatever you've got. And right now, a lot of theaters are pretty mediocre. Um, it's not a particularly good experience, and the prices are ridiculous. We don't have much flexibility. And what's happening with a lot of the screen is they've taken on debt, they're highly leveraged, and they're not likely to survive. Where they're going to get picked up in bankruptcy, we can expect a lot fewer changes. Number two, all those little old people who didn't know how to watch Netflix or Amazon or any of the other, Hulu, et cetera, during this pandemic, their kids dropped over to their houses and hooked them up. So now they're used to watching this stuff that they used to go to a movie theater to watch, and they're watching it at home. Give me a good reason why you're going to get up and go to a movie theater now once you've gotten into that habit. So we have economic realities, theaters closing, expensive costs are there, a lot of home competition for everything, habits changing. And I actually think the motion picture business is only on the verge of figuring out what to do. Anybody, and we're, we're, we're hearing about movies that are going to open up in August, in September, October, et cetera. And I believe, oh, 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 there it goes. That's the Easter Bunny. He just went by. I'm sorry. Um, I, I look at this and I'm thinking to myself, if in fact there's a second wave, and I think we've already begun the second wave, you tell me how we get back to movie theaters within the next six months. I don't see it. And even once the theaters are open and the virus is vaccinated into oblivion or there's some sort of herd immunity, how do you change the habits of people? We've now gotten used to seeing this content at home. What happens to the, to the war that Universal is currently having with exhibitors where it's released trolls and said, you know, we're not sure we're going to go back to a theatrical window. And the theater owners are saying, well, we're not going to open any Universal pictures until you do. No antitrust issues there, huh? And you've got to figure out that all this stuff gets worked out. But theater going, going to a movie theater until theaters really up their game, isn't ever going to be the same. That's my answer for the beginning. You have to ask more questions if you want more specificity. <laughs> uh, you know, what What I was going to do is I'm going to shift um, to uh, producing new content as we kind of look to the future. Uh, a lot of production, obviously, is at this moment uh, are shut down. Uh, there may be some post-production that's being done remotely, but for the most part, I think things are on hold. And as we look to the future, I, I wanted to see if you can share a little bit about the concept of risk pooling, as well as uh, the implication of force majeure that perhaps could be applied in some cases when it comes to deal making of production and distribution as well. All right. These are a bunch of areas. First of all, force majeure, basically being able to stop production 
uh, and, and lay people off temporarily predicated upon some sort of disaster. Uh, every union has, not all unions cover force majeure, sometimes it's exclusively done by contract, but the general provisions in the past are that somewhere between four and eight weeks of force majeure suspension, the talent has the ability to cancel or terminate the contract, and so the company likewise has the right to terminate and cancel the contract. In terms of pandemics, that doesn't work. So if there are union structures, depending on which union you're in, you're going to have to go back to the union and say, look, I can't take a risk of engaging your members to perform services on my motion picture or, or television production unless I know if there's a, something terrible happens, I can bring them back. And I can't have them unilaterally terminate the contract when, in fact, I, that means I, I've lost everything. So the first issue in risk of loss is the ability to bring players back. And that requires both the unions that have applicable jurisdiction over the relevant persons performing the services, as well as the services of the individuals and their lawyers and agents, whether they accept these provisions contractually. My guess is that it's going to become uniform, that they're going to be much longer force majeure provisions for pandemics, because this ain't the last one. We've had five or six minor pandemics, unless you count you know, Ebola, maybe not so minor, but we've, they're going to continue. So we're going to really have to build this into our legal infrastructure. So let's start with the fact that that has to change and it will change. I don't think unions are going to stand on formality in that scenario and have their people say, gee, we got a great contract. Where's my paycheck? The other issue is what happens when a production, normally when you hire an actor and they get sick, you have cast insurance, or at least you have the availability of cast insurance. At this juncture, there isn't a completion bond guarantor or insurance company that I know of and I've been checking all over the place, that covers losses that are related to uh, a viral outbreak. And that includes Lloyds of London. London. They won't write the policies at all, and they used to insure absolutely anything. So that's not going on. So now if you mount a production, you go to a network and say, look, I'm gonna make this television series, I'm a program supplier to you. What happens if I have an infection that shuts my set down and I have to push things back? The network says, well, that's your problem. And then the program supplier says, well, I'm not, if I'm a major studio, maybe I'll self-insure. But if I'm an individual program supplier or a smaller company, if I take that risk, it bankrupts me. I can't do that. I won't do it. The network says, well, I'm not ordering the show because I've got my own problems. I'm in the, in the commercial paper market that just bought or that is $5 billion. I can't keep taking these risks as a bottomless pit. There are several answers to that. One. Government is an insurer of last resort. <clears throat> we have it with FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, Pension Guarantee Corporation. We have flood insurance. We have earthquake insurance, at some level being provided or underwritten by the government. The government is the only structure that is large enough to be able to accommodate the risk of this. And if they get every production to, to, to play in, in this yard, they will be able to charge premiums and risk pool on a much bigger basis than any insurance. For states that basically have incentive programs to get their, their people working, it makes a lot of sense to step into this additional financial capacity. Underwriters can constantly change the, the deductible and the premiums predicated on the state of world at the moment. But I think at some juncture, this is going to be a necessity. There may be a few insurance companies that write policies in the future. I would absolutely say that unless they have a massive insurance pool, 
I'm a little skeptical of individual private insurance in this kind of a situation. The more practical response for program suppliers and, and motion picture producers, et cetera, may be to say from, to their buyers, look, maybe you don't pick up the risk of total loss. Or maybe I give you the network the right to cancel a show, but then you've got to pay me a cancellation fee. What I think we need to focus on is what I will call shutdown, storage, and restart costs. And if we focus on those costs alone and nothing else, just that this in terms of a, a pandemic, then we're going to be able to shorten and minimize what those costs are. It's just going to be easier for all of us. Number two, until we have guidelines that are fairly uniform, what I will call pandemic protocols, and every major government that I know of is in the process of doing these. The unions are doing them. I've done looked at about 15 or 20 of them. But there are issues that arise that most of these protocols don't cover. What happens if you're shooting in Canada and flying your actors from Los Angeles? There's a 14-day quarantine in Canada. Do the actors get paid for that 14 days? That would break the bank. So you start looking at these kinds of issues, they're going to be costs associated with the future going forward, which then takes you to the next step. What can technology do that will answer a lot of these production risk questions? And one of the big things is we are moving very rapidly to total and complete virtual production, where the entire production, inside, outdoors, surf movies, in space, in the jungle, on a mountaintop, in a castle, in a museum, anywhere, are done on a single soundstage with lots of you know, cables and lots of steps and movable stuff, but all green screen. And the ability to do that today at a level that is fairly inexpensive, under 100 grand a day for production costs, plus you know, your above the line, all the other things, is becoming a reality. And in terms of television, the seamlessness with which you can do that for a price is staggeringly cost-effective. It's much easier to control a small stage than to move people around in cities, set up new locations, drive trucks. The less you have to move, the more you can contain, the better off you are. So I'm going to predict that virtual production becomes much more regular. And for those who are in the business, I would strongly recommend that you study how it's done and begin to realize that if you, I, I had one client say, well, I went to a, a demonstration like uh, 18 months ago and I wasn't convinced, to which I say 18 months is the equivalent of 50 years. You can't do that. These changes are taking place on a daily, weekly basis. You really need to get on top of it. We all need to get on top of it. The other thing that's going to happen a lot is you're going to see a lot more user-based content. User-based content is fascinating because it's kind of invasion of privacy, voyeurism meets necessity. And, you know, you're now looking at, you know, you, you know, I was watching The Voice the other night, looking into the homes of the people who were there and watching people running in the background. It's very interesting, and there's a voyeuristic appeal to that. We're going to see that, too. We're also probably going to have some reinvention in the way of how marketing Ultimately, if we're not going to have bricks and mortar, there's going to be much more of direct-to-consumer communication. And I think direct-to-consumer communication takes place very, very well in the space of digital production. And last and hardly least is to understand everyone understands why advertising is valuable or do they? Everyone thinks that the advertising is exceptionally valuable because it provides 
a, you know, an ability to reach a lot of people. But what's really going on is the metadata generated from the communication between consumer and the pur purveyor of content is beginning to be more valuable than the advertising space itself. We need to figure out how to embrace that. We have companies that they're willing to sell it to you for an amazing amount of money. A lot of them refuse to share their data. A lot of them will share their data, but only pieces of it. But I think in terms of being in this business is an understanding that that metadata is the ability to identify with amazing commercial efficiency, appropriate demos, psychographics for your products and services. And that becomes the single most valuable component of advertising, in addition to the entertainment value of, of reaching. How's that for a long-winded answer? No, thank you. Yeah, that's a fabulous answer. And finally, can we ask about what your opinion is as to the ripple effect on other businesses? We've covered insurance, but real estate or, or other businesses that might come to mind. Well, I, the reality is our, our economy is profoundly interrelated. 71% of the American economy is consumer-driven. And to the extent that you, you know, everyone understands that if people are scared to spend money or they're impaired in spending money because they haven't earned money for a while, that isn't a ripple effect. It's, it's like the nuclear device exploded over your head. Uh, it, the ripples are are tsunami-like and lethal. We're gonna to have to come out of this understanding that if the longer this goes, and you know we're gonna shut down again, all the people protesting their constitutional rights, which don't exist, by the way, we, we're, we're watching people losing their ability to make money. We're watching a country incurring massive deficits. Frankly, it's easier to incur a deficit at a low interest rate than it is to have your entire population go without work or a large portion of it. So what's going to happen by definition, with less money to spend, all your advertising dollars, all your marketing dollars, all the other stuff are uh, by definition going to have to be more efficient if they're going to generate revenues. And so we're going to watch all kinds of tie-ins and bundles and all lots of things. AT&T just announced that all their, their services, streaming and linear, are going to be merged into a single service. Cable television is slowly drifting into the ether, whatever that was. But you also have some economic realities. Statistics show that the average consumer is willing to pay for 2.4 average subscription services, Amazon basically being free if you're on Amazon Prime. But that means basically who is going to be there charging subscription dollars to the consumer and how long will it last? And if the recession, recession endures longly, does that 2.4 number drop even further? It could. And what are the services? I mean, what is CBS streaming? Where is it? Peacock, which is coming online. HBO Max. What is HBO Max? It, it, it's fascinating to look at this. How many of these services are you going to be able to pay for? And I don't know the answer to that. And real estate values are, are going to stay up? Of course not. Try and sell it. Try, try to get a loan today when you're selling an average middle class home. Good luck with that one. Real estate prices are going to crash and burn very quickly. The only good news about this pandemic is unlike the Great Depression, the pandemic will go away faster. The recovery time is still a big question mark. So we're all going to come back much more slowly. You also have big players like Amazon and Netflix that have enough content either in the can or through output deals. They don't have to make a darn thing for a year. And they're watching their competitors going out in the mar marketplace and borrow billions of dollars to maintain liquidity and stability. 
and they know that their competitors are going to drive down the prices of content, except for the really, really, really AAA content, you're going to see talent paid less, you're going to see rights get less money, and you're going to see production costs come down. Because bottom line, when you borrow billions and billions and billions of dollars, is almost every major structure out there except Amazon and, and, and uh, Netflix, they don't need to, they do, but they don't need to, what's going to happen? Are you going to be able to go to a Disney or a Warner Media? Warner Media is close to $200 billion worth of debt. It's a lot of money. What does this do to people when revenue stops, debt continues, and costs pile up? And it's a very interesting question. And the answer is, it's not pretty, but we'll get through it. I love the way you ended that. We'll get get through it, as difficult as it's going to be. Both Jason and I really wanted to thank you for, for the for the your insight and your your thinking. So really appreciate the time and uh, and the commentary.